If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel is in the Old Testament. It is a prophet, which means it is going to be after our poetry or wisdom writing. So if you crack open your Bible to dead center, you're probably going to be in the book of Psalms. It's after that. And you get into what is called the major prophets. And it's not because they had a higher batting average, but simply because they wrote more. And so Ezekiel is one of our major prophets. After uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations, you will find Ezekiel. And we are going to begin our journey in and through the book of Ezekiel. A very different look at Scripture than we have gotten through the Gospel of Mark, which has for the most part been a Gospel writing, a narrative, an account of the life of Jesus. Now we are going to look into the prophetic word that was given to the prophet Ezekiel. I am going to be reading verses 1 through 15 today, so this is a lengthy passage. However, we're going to be studying the entire first chapter of the book of Ezekiel this morning. Please rise as in honor of the word of God as we read from the prophet Ezekiel. And the word of God says this. Now it came about in the 13th year on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Kabar among the exiles, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God on the fifth of the month in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim exile. The word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kabar. And there the hand of the Lord came upon him. As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north and a great cloud with, flash, with fire flashing forth continual, uh, continually and a bright light around it. And in its midst, something like a glowing metal in the midst of the fire. Within it, there were figures resembling four living beings. And this was their appearance. They had human forms. Each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight and their feet were like a calf's hoof. And they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, were human hands. As for their faces and wings on the four of them. Their wings touched one another, and their faces did not turn when they moved, but each went straight forward. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right, and the face of the bull on the left. And all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above, each with two touching another being and two covering their bodies. And each went straight forward wherever the, uh, wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go without turning as they went. In the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. The fire was bright and lightning was flashing from the fire. And the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. Now, as I looked at the living beings, behold, there was one wheel on the earth beside the living beings for each of the four of them. Please be seated. An interesting and very different scripture reading than what we have gotten used to from the gospel of Mark. Today we are going to return to the Old Testament. And as I was uh, studying and familiarizing myself with this text, I, uh, and really the context that was all around it, I took a break one evening to watch a movie with my wife. 
And in the movie, there was a group of men who had been charged with maintaining law and order in in a land that was not their own. They were on a foreign country, and they had been enlisted by the government to to just enforce law and order and protect the people of a certain land that really had just kind of grown wild and lawless. As they did so, there was a group of Christians who wandered into their land. They were coming on a pilgrimage there with a a godly mission in mind, and they were attacked by the wild people that lived in the area. These men rode in and saved the day, killing many and doing all that they could to defend the Christians that were there. When the fighting was completely over, and they began to look around to see who was still alive, they found one such man, one such Christian, hiding under the chariot that was bringing them along. As he was hiding, he was saying prayers to God, prayers of protection and deliverance. One of these men turned to the Christian and said, Save your prayers, boy. Your God does not live here. I got curious. And I, kind of, I couldn't help but wonder how many times a line like this was said in a movie or in, in some other media when, when things uh, were looking bad. And I did a Google search and actually I found out quite a bit. And in historical fiction and, and in, in fantasy books and in a lot of other times, there is many times where someone is lifting up prayers, maybe to God... Yahweh, or maybe to something else. And because of the situation surrounding them, they are told to cease their prayers because God is either not there or he will not hear them. The scenario is always the same, though. A man who has held on to his faith, even when things go awful, lifts up prayers to God, but those around him who have lost all hope in the midst of all of the sadness and wickedness and death call them to abandon God because they feel as though they have been abandoned. The reason I tell you this is because that is the exact scenario that we are being dropped in this morning. As we look at the prophet Ezekiel and what he says, we have to remember that he lived in a very specific time. In fact, this is one of those uh, prophetic books, one of those books in the Old Testament that is very clear about when it was written. It gives us all sorts of details of months and days and who was king here and who was king there and tells us almost exactly what time in history these visions took place. And let me tell you, this is a bad time in the midst of Israel. Much like in the movie that I watched and in many others, There were people around who thought God had abandoned them. And yet it is God who is going to speak into this very situation. And he did so for the benefit of his hearers then. And I believe he does so to our benefit today. So let's get into our text. The first question we have to ask ourselves when we approach this first chapter of the book of Ezekiel is, Who is Ezekiel? We see from verse 3 that he is identified as the author of our book. We don't know if that was written in later so that we would know for sure or if he began to speak of himself in the third person just so people would identify him. It doesn't matter. We do know that he was a priest. In fact, it says he was a priest, the son of a man named Buzi, B-U-Z-I. 
So what we know right off the bat from Ezekiel is that he was a Levitical priest. He was one of those people that would go to the temple and he would offer sacrifices that that was part of his his bloodline and part of who he was. And yet, what is most interesting about Ezekiel in relationship to the fact that he's a priest is he's not a priest living in Israel. See, normally, if he was a priest living in Israel, he would live in a Levitical city or in Jerusalem itself. He would have his turn where he would go and he would be at the temple complex and he would be a part of of, uh, showbread and burning incense and offering sacrifices and giving prayers and blessings and maybe even teaching in the temple complex as he performed all of his temple duties. But Ezekiel is not in Israel. In fact, look again at verse 1, and we realize that he is in Babylon. He's by the river Kabar. When it says that he is in the area of the Chaldeans, it is talking about Babylon. In fact, it says that the Kebar River, history shows us, was actually a created canal, a man-made river that was existed to move water from the Euphrates River to the nation of Babylon. Ezekiel is not a Jew living in Israel, but rather an exiled refugee. Much like the people we're more familiar with, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore, and this is important, and we need to remember this because everything that God is going to be telling is through Ezekiel, telling to Israel, and ultimately telling to us even today, was told to a people in exile. He was not telling these things to Israel that still remained in Israel, but he was talking to Israel who had been exiled and was far from home, alienated from their families and their home world. This will matter to us in the future, so take note of that. Along with this, we need to understand when he is writing. As I mentioned earlier, this is one of those uh, letters, this is one of those uh, prophetic writings that gets very specific with dates and times to the point that we can almost know to the very year that he was writing. Verse 2 says it was the fifth year of the king Jehoiakim's reign. 2 King 24 tells us a little bit about this. In verse 1, it says, In the days of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, or in these days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, um, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. And he turned and rebelled against him. Now, that was actually his father. But then it says that, So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, became king in his place. Now, Jehoiakim became king when he was actually very young. Some said as, as young as 18 years old. And he had come into his fifth year as, as a king, as a vassal king of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. That was when he received these visions. So the king that is in Israel was put there by Nebuchadnezzar. And that king was very young and very heavily influenced by Nebuchadnezzar. At this point, there are Jewish exiles living in Babylon, but there are also still lots of Jews living in Israel. And and for the most part, temple worship is, is kind of continuing on. They have not completely destroyed Jerusalem as of this point. 
It is under heavy tax. It is not doing well. The people are suffering. Jeremiah is in uh, Jerusalem at this time and things are not going good. However, the temple is still intact. This leads to some very interesting ideas that both Jeremiah the prophet in Israel and Ezekiel the prophet in Babylon had to address. And these are themes that we are going to see over and over again as we dive into this text. The first idea is that God lived in the temple in Jerusalem. There was this, see what had happened was, when Solomon was king, Solomon built the temple. And they built the temple and they put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple and it was understood that, that God was present at the Ark of the Covenant. That where the wings touched on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, that God was present. And so that's why the temple became the place where they worshipped God. But that belief began to evolve over time to the point that suddenly God, uh, the God of Israel, was, was viewed upon just like all the other gods of all the other nations around them. And so God, Israel had their God and that God watched over them and was concerned about them and was there with them. But then there were other gods over other countries and that when the countries would go to war, that essentially the gods would go to war to see who was better. Now, Israel had taken this to the point to believe that because the temple was in Jerusalem and the Ark of the Covenant still sat in the temple in Jerusalem, that there was absolutely no way that God would allow anything to happen to Jerusalem. That no matter how bad things got, no matter how much they wandered away from God, no matter how much sin was present in the nation of Israel, God was obligated to the temple and to protect it. They really, truly believed that Nebuchadnezzar could come and go a thousand times, but they would be fine because God would never let him go any further than the city of Jerusalem. But it also had a very, another very interesting aspect to it, is not only did they believe that God was in Israel, but they did not believe that God was anywhere else. That God was only in Israel. And that God really didn't care about what went on in, the other, in other places, did not care what happened in Assyria or Babylon or Kentucky. And let me tell you, if you're an exiled Jew living in Babylon, that's a hard thing to hear. The exiles believed that they were on their own. And they knew that they shouldn't appeal to the gods of the Babylonians, and yet they felt like their God was far away. And either incapable or just uninterested in their plight. The second idea that we get because of the, the specific time period that we are in is that many believe that the exile and that this occupation by Nebuchadnezzar would be short. Because there was no way that the God of Israel was in any way, shape, or form an inferior God to the gods of Babylon. And so surely, very soon, God would muster up and remove the people and the occupation of Babylon. And so they thought, don't worry. Don't get settled down in Babylon. Don't worry about what taxes they impose because God is going to step up and God is going to remove all of our problems and God is going to set everything right for us very quickly. And so don't get used to this and don't worry about it because it's going to be over soon. See, here's the reality. 
the people of Israel and the people in exile, the, 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 the nation of Israel, had a very small understanding of God. See, they had lost their sense of awe and majesty and wonder of Yahweh. They had made him into something small, manageable, domesticated, easy to understand and easy to set aside. But what we are going to see through Ezekiel very soon is that God is a lot bigger than both they or we ever imagined. Now, I have to be honest with you today. It certainly seems like I know a lot of people and even myself, even myself is guilty from time to time of having a very small opinion of God. We in the United States of America, we have, have believed um, God and we have molded God into this thing, this, this, this idea that God is there to make us feel good, that he wants us to be happy, that generally speaking, he wants us to be good. And otherwise, he wants to just leave us alone. And so we, have, we too, a lot of times, have a very small understanding of God. We say things like, I believe that God just wants me to be happy. Or, I know that, that the man upstairs is looking down on me. And we say all of these little things that imply that, one, we have a handle on God and we really, we get him. I get God. I, you know, we say things like, well, I, I know what I believe, and me and God, we have, we, we have an understanding. And, and me and God, we got a good thing going on, and we're, we're good, and we, we get this idea that, that God has become, become our, our equal or even our, our, our inferior that is there to, to kind of do what we want him to do. And so when we pray to God, we expect God to answer. And when God doesn't answer, we get annoyed or we'll say, fine, God, I'll just do it myself. Or we want God to show up and intervene and do stuff in certain areas of our lives. But in other areas of our lives, we just assume that God does not see us nor care about us. And so in those areas of our lives, we do whatever we want. These are all symptoms of a small view of God. That we've made a God, and, let, and make no mistake, brothers and sisters, this is idolatry. That we have made up a God for ourselves that will meet all of our needs and ignore all of our failings. That he is there to make us feel good and do stuff for us. And every once in a while, we'll throw a dollar in the plate, we'll show up to church on Sunday, we'll say a nice thing or bless our meal, and that should keep him happy. That was how Israel saw God. And that's probably how sometimes all of us see God. But in our passage today, God shows up. I want you to notice how God shows up. 
It says the, that Ezekiel, who was a priest at this time, he had not been called into the office of a prophet yet, and he is there by the river. Some say that he was close to the river because that was a place that he could ceremonially wash himself because he was living in an unclean land. And while he was in the land, suddenly he looked up, and there was a massive, powerful, mighty, and majestic storm. Huge clouds, lightning flashing back and forth. And even in the midst of the cloud, it looked like a, a, a burning fire. So imagine for a moment, and, and if you've ever got a chance to see this, you were there and you're by the river and the land is open wide. So think western United States, big sky country. And a storm cloud starts rolling in and it is, it is towering over the horizon and it's massive and you're seeing lightning flash from the left to the right and the right to the left. And as you're looking at the cloud, the cloud is glowing orange. And it is so powerful and so scary. Like when we have seen that wall of clouds here that have that, that eerie hint of green that tells you that the hail and the tornado is coming. Only here it is, it is orange and, and fiery and it looks as though that a very furnace is inside the middle of it. As I was reading this, uh, this passage, I was immediately reminded of something I actually read from our ministry partner up in, in Indianapolis, Yale Wall. He wrote a book and he talked about being in, in awe of a lightning storm. And he was down in Texas, in Waco, which is also a big sky area. And as he was driving around, this storm cloud came in out of nowhere and it blackened the sky. And as he stood there and the sky was black all around him, he saw the lightning shooting from one side to the left. And while he probably intelligently should have gone inside, but he, like my wife, would in a massive storm, wants to go outside. I'm sure y'all can relate to that. I'm married to one of those people that when the, the uh, tornado siren goes off, she goes outdoors, not to the basement good example, but we won't get into that. And so Yale was standing in all of this and he said that, that what was so amazing about it was the contrast of the dark, dark sky and these magnificent, powerful lightning bolts shooting across the Texas sky. And he was in awe of the contrast and the flashes. And he realized that, that this was such an attention grabbing thing. And that is exactly what God was doing. As this storm begins to roll into Ezekiel, and I don't know if he was the only one who could even see it, God was getting his attention. And Ezekiel, could, he couldn't run from the storm. No matter how far, north, south, east, or west, he were to flee, the storm was still coming. He would not be able to get away from it, not on a horse, not on a camel, not on his feet. And so he had nothing left to do but stand in awe of the power and beauty of God. We are still called to do that today. We come to church on Sunday not to be entertained by a preacher or by music or by lights and sounds and videos, but to stand in awe and wonder of the beauty of God who made us and who saved us for himself. Even the Psalms call us to this very thing. Psalm 45, 5 reads, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Ezekiel, had, he had nothing, nothing he could do. But just stand in awe of God who is revealing himself to him. Don't let us not lose our wonder and the God who made us. 
And then perhaps even more amazing, the storm gave way to four angelic figures, both wonderful and horrible at the same time. They said that all four of these creatures had the appearance of a man, the form of a man, and yet they were different. Each one had four faces, that of a human, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. They had feet like hooves that were straight down and four wings. It's said that no matter which way it turned because of its four faces, that, that, that it was always going forward because there was always a face wherever it was turning. Of those wings, two went up and touched each other and went up into the sky and two covered themselves and they glowed also like this fiery um, cloud that he had seen. This glow was because of the very nearness to the glory of God that they had. And so God's glory reflected on them and it looked as though they were burnished bronze still glowing from the fire. We could spend a lot of time discussing what these animals look like and why they did that, but I don't think that is the scope of what we need to do today. Instead, I want to point out what they were doing. Specifically, as we look to verse 22 and verse 26, we read that, that now over their heads of the living creature, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome glean of crystal spread out over their heads. Verse 26 says, now above the expanse, there was over their heads something that resembling of a throne, like that of lapis lazuli or sapphire, or a blue precious metal, precious stone. And on it they he saw God himself. Verse 22 and 26 reveal to us that these majestic creatures, these what, the, what they were later be called in uh, a different chapter, cherubim, were the porters of God. That is, they carried the throne of God. They were preparing the world for his holiness and his majesty and his power. And everywhere that they turned, God's presence was there and the spirit led them everywhere that they were to go. We may have heard of these same beings before in Isaiah chapter six, verse three, when the cherub called out to one to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. See, Ezekiel is not gazing upon a small, domesticated, Americanized God. But he is standing in awe and wonder of the holiest of holies. The king of all creation who stands over them with all power and all wonder and all beauty and all majesty. This is a very big God and I can only assume that it is terrifying. Because God is so much bigger than anyone at this time that is being written has even imagined. But there's one more thing I want us to notice from this appearance of God. And that was what was connected to these angelic beings that we read about in verse 15. 
And it says this, that there was one wheel on the earth beside each of the living beings. The passage goes on to describe these wheels and all that they are. And and the way these wheels were constructed, they could turn on a dime and go to the left or the right, anywhere that the Spirit of God directed them to go. And so as he was looking upon this majestic thing and he saw these angelic beings and the throne of God up above them and the wheels down below them, he could see that they could go to the left, to the right, forward, backward, even up and down. And no matter what God decided that they would do, that was exactly what they would do. This revelation of God's presence at the river Kabar revealed that God was not stuck within the boundaries of Israel. Nor was he only located in the temple of Jerusalem. On the contrary, God was on the move. And he is everywhere and he is anywhere that he chooses to reveal himself. Even Babylon and even in our darkest days. See, they had forgotten that. They had lost how big God was. They'd even forgotten the very words that Solomon said as the temple was dedicated when he said, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Can you imagine for just a moment that they thought that God resided in a building? Now, that sounds funny until we start to think the same thing, huh? When we think God lives and exists here and that God only hears our prayers here and that God only speaks here and that this word only works here. And we start to look at the church building as the place where God is and God is saying, no, I am with you everywhere. I am everywhere and anywhere and I show up everywhere and anywhere that I so choose. The God who is with you when you are in the rafters on a Sunday morning is the God who is with you in the mire of Tuesday evening. In your best day and in your worst, in brightest day and blackest night, the God of heaven is with you. He has not abandoned you. God wanted the exiles of Israel to know that he had not forgotten them, nor had he overlooked them. Because they were no longer in the land of Israel. There was a point in my life where I was very far from God. When I was living for myself, when I was doing my own thing and having my own way, when I thought I could find meaning and purpose in either success at work or at school where I could find my meaning, my meaning in life through girls or even alcohol. And over and over again, those things failed me and failed me and failed me until finally I got to a point that I was in my very lowest state. And I was depressed and I was alone and I was sick and I was tired. And God showed up on that day. And even though I had spent two years running from God, longing to find meaning anywhere else than where I was before I started to run. I wanted to find meaning anywhere but in God. And I realized in that moment that even though I was running from God, I couldn't run from God. 
And he showed up in that moment and said, are you done? Because it's time to get to work. I don't know where you are. I don't know where you've been. But rest assured, your legs cannot take you far enough, fast enough to escape the God who knows you and loves you. You have not been overlooked and you have not been forgotten. And God knows you and God will redeem you and God will use you for his glory and for his kingdom. Ezekiel was a priest who couldn't perform his priestly duties. He was a man in exile, unclean because an unclean land. And in this, what we're going to see in the weeks to come is God will show up to him in all his wonder and all his majesty and all his glory and say, I am making you a prophet. And you will prophesy in a land that does not know me. We need to remember that when all is happening around us, good, bad, out of our control or seemingly in our control, we need to remember that God is doing something and that he is doing it for a reason. Through the good and through the bad, he is drawing you and he is drawing me back to a closer relationship with, with him. And that all this world can throw at us. All of our adversities are not bigger than God. Instead, what we see from our passage today is that the God of the Bible is so much bigger than even we could hope to imagine. When we know God, not make up our own understanding of God, but when we open up God's word and we know God for who he is and who has revealed himself to be in scripture, then we start to get a clearer picture of who he is and what he is doing in the world all around us. I'm not afraid of COVID-19. I'm not afraid of what's been going on in Afghanistan. I'm not afraid of our government or the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. I'm not afraid of the health concerns that have been going on in my family over the last few months. I'm not afraid of these things because when I see the God of heaven and I see his glory and his wonder and his beauty as it is revealed in scripture, I know that I have nothing to fear. Because if the God who sits on this throne that we read about in Ezekiel 1 knows me and calls me his own, then no matter what happens, when all is said and done, I am his and he is mine. I hope that everyone here can know him that way that can truly know him and have that relationship with him. But that doesn't really happen just through reading our Bibles. That doesn't happen by just going to church. That doesn't happen by just being a good person and trying really hard. No, that only happens. I want you to understand this. The only way you can truly know God 
in order to say that I am his and he is mine is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said it this way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you're here today, and for whatever reason, you've made a nice little box, and you've created a nice little God to fit in that nice little box, and you've been holding on to that nice little box, hoping that when all is said and done, as long as you have your hands on that box, you'll be fine. I'm calling you today to throw that box in the fire. And I'm calling you to know the God who does not fit in boxes. The the God who even the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain. And I'm calling you to know him through his son, Jesus Christ. We explain that in our church in this way. We say that, that God, first off, as we see from our passage today, that God created all things and that God made all things on purpose and, and with purpose. But we did not stay there. We, we decided to create our own purpose and do our own thing. And that's exactly what Israel did, even our passage. They eventually said, well, you know what? God, he's pretty cool for some things. But, you know, the Baal and Asherah, they do some pretty cool things too. So we'll kind of do both and we'll kind of go our own way. And when we go our own way, that's called sin. Sin is doing what we want to do, how we want to do it, when we want to do it. And the very reason that Israel is in exile today, and we're going to see this play out over and over again, is because they'd sinned against God and they wouldn't repent. And let me tell you, when we sin against God, it's going to take us somewhere. You can see that by the arrow on the screen. And it takes us to a place of brokenness. Now, I could give you all the Bible verses on brokenness, but I don't think I need to because I think we all feel that brokenness in our life. Make no mistake, the very reason Ezekiel was by this river was because he felt broken, dirty, unclean, not right, like he didn't belong where he was. And we feel that way too, right? That we're not living up to our potential, that there are things that we know we should do, but we don't. The very fact that we as people say, I ought to do this, but I didn't, reveals to us that we feel our brokenness. And as I mentioned earlier in my own life, we can try to fill up that brokenness and fill in those cracks with all sorts of stuff. We can try to fill it with money. We can try to fill it with success from our own children. We can try to fill it with relationships. We can try to numb it down with drugs and alcohol or just not think about it through movies and video games and television. But we can't fix brokenness from brokenness. And so we recognize that we need something outside of our own brokenness to deliver us from our brokenness. And that's where the good news of the gospel comes. See, the gospel is this, that God, the God that we just read about, the God of the storm, the God who sits on the highest throne in the highest of heavens above the cherub, that God loves you. In fact, he loved you so much that he sent his one and only son to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins, that he was buried And that he rose from the grave three days later to conquer death and the grave so that we might be saved from our brokenness. The Bible communicates that to us by saying that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. We talk about that as repenting and believing. Repenting means to turn around. 
And so when we repent of our sin and turn to God and turn to Jesus as our Lord and our master, believing that he is in fact God's son, it says that we will be delivered from our brokenness and begin to recover and pursue God's purpose for our, our life. Begin to do what God called us to do from the very beginning. If you want to know the God that shows up in the first chapter of Ezekiel, this is how you know him. And I ask you this today, where do you see yourself on this picture? Do you see yourself in that brokenness where you know that you've sinned against God and you know that you've done your own thing your own way at your own time and you've been desperately trying to find a way to fix it? Even if that meant making this little God that fits in this little box that I'm going to carry through life, hoping that I can get through my little life okay. If you see yourself in that place of brokenness, we want to ask you this. What is keeping you from believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and making him and crying out to him as Lord of your life? If the answer is nothing, then we would invite you to do that today. And as we close our time today, I will walk you through a prayer of salvation. I don't normally do this, but I feel like today's the day I need to do it. And if you take today and you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, I, would, I call you, I, I, as much as I can demand you, I demand that you tell somebody. So that you can begin walking with Jesus and you can begin to know the creator of the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Our gracious God and King, Lord, we stand in awe of who you are. God, we see immediately from our passage today that you are not a small God that fits in buildings, that you are not a God that can be explained away in a statue, that you are not a God who turns a blind eye to who we are. God, you are huge. You are unknowable to a point. You are, we cannot know you completely. God, that you are, are greater and, and more wonderful than the highest heavens, that you are more powerful than our minds can even understand, that your very voice is like the rushing of a thousand waters. And God, you, this big, wonderful, perfect, majestic, terrible powerful God. You love us. And that you know us. In fact, we look and the scriptures say that you know the very numbers on our, of the hairs of our head. And that you loved us so much, you sent your one and only son to be our savior. And that if we would just surrender ourselves to Christ Jesus, that we would get to know you, not as, as the 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 the, the fearful, powerful, scary God that we might think about or see in Ezekiel, but as a God who is a father. A father that is powerful, that is majestic, that is holy, holy, holy. God, I pray that every single one of us would have the heart to know you. And God, that they would know you through your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that, that we in this room that are ready to receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we would say that, that we are sinners, that we have gone our own way, 
And because we have gone our own way, we, have, we are broken and we are separated from you. And God, I pray that today we would believe in Jesus Christ, that he was your son who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave three days later. God, I pray that we would believe that and that we would confess him as Lord of our lives, turning away from sin and turning to you. And God, I pray that if that is the prayer on anyone's heart today, Lord, that you would indeed save them, that you would call them into a new life with you. And Lord, that they would take those next steps and and make that known and, and follow Christ's example in baptism. God, we pray that you would show up in mighty ways in all of our lives, starting with salvation by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.